and turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. We're getting close to the end of John 17, but we're not quite there yet. John chapter 17, and we'll be looking at verses 20 through 23. And we're looking at the marks of a church, the marks of the church, the local church here that ought to uh, be characteristics, marks of our church. And we've uh, looked at a number of them already. Uh, we looked at joy. Uh, we looked at uh, uh, sanctification. We looked at truth. We looked at um, mission. Uh, and uh, this morning we'll look at unity. Unity. And it's uh, the next... Uh, it's the next passage here that comes our way, and I think it's uh, very appropriate uh, for the time that our church is uh, in at this time. Um, it would seem the great cry of Christianity from all over the world would be for unity. Throughout history, especially in more recent times, there have been plans, there have been strategies, there have been organizations that have developed and uh, they're de- trying to develop unity. Many people are expending great energy to pr- try to bring unity in various strands of Christianity. And I think we would all agree that really uh, none of it has really worked. Uh, by the same token, we would all agree, I think, especially every Bible-believing local church stands in a desperate need of unity. The basic problem stems from a misunderstanding of unity. Uh, unity is a fashionable subject among so-called evangelicals and even fundamentalists of today. If you want to move to the head of the line, you've got to push and shove to get to the front of, the, uh, of this idea of unity. Uh, it's important to call your group something like together uh, or united or a coalition. And uh, like love uh, has been hijacked. The word love has been hijacked by a syrupy sentimentality. Unity has been stolen by toleration. And the Apostle Paul uh, wanted us to live both in love and unity. Excuse me as I lubricate my throat. <clears throat> now, before we get to the mark of the church in John 17, I want you to notice what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Now after thanking God for the Corinthian position in Christ, he said they were in Christ, Paul began addressing a consequential behavior, and he starts in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 with the idea of a concept of unity. Disunity comes first out of all the problems with which the the apostle had begun. He desired, and it's no different in any of his epistles, he desired for them to be unified. So in that verse there, you notice he first, he beseeches. He uh, begs, he pleads, he calls for their brotherliness, he pleads by the name of their, of their and his Lord, and then he describes what he expects. They are to speak the same thing. 
There are to be no divisions. They are to be perfectly joined together. They have the same mind, the same judgment. You say, wow, is he really for real? Now, he says we need to have the same talking points. That's what Paul taught on unity. Biblical unity isn't to agree to disagree. It's only to agree, according to the Apostle Paul, who was used by the Holy Spirit to, read this, uh, to, to write this portion of Scripture. And it seems that the only thing we've got to agree upon today is agreeing. And if you won't tolerate an alternate opinion, then you're, decisive, you're the decisive one in a contemporary fake unity. By the way, this afternoon I will be talking about unity again. And we're going to talk about genuine unity or fake unity. But if you want to know the nature of the kind of issues that Paul wanted them to speak the same thing, have no division about, be perfectly joined together, to have the same opinion to agree upon, just read the whole book of 1 Corinthians. That wouldn't be too hard, would it? But if we can just kind of quickly go through uh, and note some of the subject matter that he talks about when he talks about ordaining, choosing unity... He wants unity on methods. That's seen in 1 Corinthians 1 through 4. They were to evangelize. They were to do ministry in a biblically prescribed manner, a way that depended upon the Lord and brought Him glory. They were to have church discipline, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They couldn't ignore that. And for more than just immorality, they weren't to, to bring fellow believers to secular courts, we find in 1 Corinthians 6. They were to have one view on divorce and remarriage, 1 Corinthians 7. Fathers were to have the authority over their virgin daughters, that's 1 Corinthians 7. No one was to be a stumbling block to a fellow believer, that's 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And the head of the woman is the man, 1 Corinthians 11, 3. And then when Paul gets to chapter 11, he spends a lengthy time on standards of dress based on an application of Scripture. Now, come on now, Paul. Don't you know that's a non-essential? Doesn't Paul understand he's majoring on the minors? Isn't he wasting a large amount of time and space that should be used for some deep, dark, or doctrinal issues? Doesn't he know what he's doing? Talking about dress standards? That's why many fundamentalists and almost all evangelicals today would say that's what he's doing. He's undermining the gospel. He's majoring on something that's really not that important. And to top it off, he deals with the length of hair on men. (gasps) Length of hair on men and women? Now some of you have no problem with the length of your hair, men. If life was fair, you'd have hair. But doesn't Paul know that God judges the heart? Wow, Paul, you're a legalist. Now, I know if I bring up this, as I have brought up this dress issue, 
Many times fundamentalists and even evangelicals would say, well, I'm leaving the priority of the gospel and I'm talking about something that really is not that important. I could also really, uh, I can't really teach on dress issues with any dogmatism. I can't do anything like Paul did because that might cause division, that might hurt some feelings, that might ruffle some feathers. But none of that seemed to be on Paul's radar. He talked about everything without fear of it being a non-essential. They want, you know, the today's fundamentalists and evangelicals want men to feel guilty, be refrained from preaching and teaching on subjects that would be unpopular with the world. We shouldn't talk about those things because people might be offended. And then Paul spends the whole second half of chapter 11 on the Lord's table. In other words, known as communion in many ways. We've, we use that word communion. And he says that if church members partake of the bread and the cup unworthily, they might be, get sick. They might die. Now, isn't that an overboard reaction to just a minor issue? You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14, Paul uh, sends people speaking in unknown tongues on a guilt trip. He makes women who aren't silent during church meetings to feel like they must be muzzled. Certainly, he has at least looking for an exodus of the egalitarian men and women at Corinth and opening wide the back door of the church. And then for three straight chapters, causing division by bringing up these needlessly, uh, uh, these needless non-essential topics. You know, I'd say that Paul was pretty unloving. Except, wait a minute, there's 1 Corinthians chapter 13. What's that say? It's called the love chapter. Oops, I guess love is supposed to reconcile with Paul's dogmatism about the gifts. And finally, Paul gets to 1 Corinthians 15, where he talks about the resurrection. Now, shouldn't that have been chapter 1? Shouldn't he have talked about the resurrection in chapter 1? You remember, 1 Corinthians 15 has the gospel in a nutshell, the death, burial, and resurrection. Shouldn't he talked about that first? You know, there's a lot of people that try to second guess what God was doing when he had men write the scriptures. But you know, if the gospel is really first of all, then why is it appearing clear back in chapter 15? And if you bring up hair length before you speak about the death, burial, and resurrection, that's indicative of a person who sadly majors on the minors. I think we could safely say that Paul's subject order might confuse someone about the importance of the gospel. But to top it off then, in chapter 16, he brings up that old topic of money and giving. Listen, Paul is saying that the church, the local church, has to have the same mind, the same opinion, the same speech on at least this wide array of varying doctrines and practices. In Romans 16, 17, and 18, Paul told the church in Rome, if, they were, uh, if there were those who would cause division about anything that they taught, they were to be marked and avoided. Paul required absolute unity in the church without mention of essentials 
or non-essentials. He didn't say, well, this is important and this is not so important. He didn't say, this is more important than this. He treated it all the same. A total everything-ist, if I can coin a word, at old Paul. Now, what does that have to do with John 17? I'm glad you asked. Let's look at it. John 17, verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and thou in me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and thou hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Did you notice how many times he used the word one? That's what we're talking about. That's what Paul was talking about. Oneness. Unity. And I want you to notice just really two conditions for unity based on what we read here in John chapter 17. First of all, if unity is based on organization, you know, if we're going to be organized, if unity is based on organization, then what is necessary is for some most skilled administrative minds to craft a plan for bringing people together. You know, that's what's happening in churches today. They're getting CEOs to try to come up with a method of just getting as many people together as you can. If that was what unity was, then if unity is simply bringing people together for a common task, then we can dispense with this whole matter of doctrine, with conversion, with Christian practice. We don't have to worry about that. Close the Bible. Let's do something else. If unity is merely an outward perception, then we need not to give time to addressing the inner life. But if unity is the oneness of the redeemed in relationship, in belief, and in purpose, then we must seek to get to that foundation. And our Lord identifies precisely what is necessary for unity in a local church. If unity is the great need of the hour, as many would declare, then we must have a firm grasp on the conditions. And more so, we must be assured that we are personally and corporately fulfilling the conditions for unity. Now notice, first condition is faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. Our Lord prayed, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also, which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all, all may be one. Now we realize that our Lord is praying specifically to all believers who follow after this first group of apostles. And we've already noted in earlier studies that the Lord prayed concerning himself in verses 1 through 5. He prayed uh, in verses 6 through 19. He prays specifically for his apostles. But now in verse 20, we see Christ's reference to other believers. It is essential that we understand how he identifies the other believers. This whole idea of being Christian 
has been rolled into an outward affiliation with a congregation of some sort. In other words, in many circles, it does not matter what the congregation teaches or follows, just as long as it calls itself Christian. And those who join those congregations don't have to have any kind of subjective religious experience. They need only to identify with an organization of a church that's called Christian. And so you have multiples of people, not only in our own nation, but around the world, who claim to be Christian simply because they are identified with a church organization. Many people today say, oh, I'm a Christian because I was born in a Christian nation. I'm a Christian because my parents always went to such and such church, which was a Christian church. So I'm a Christian. And I would say that these individuals, yes, are possibly experiencing some organizational unity. But you know what? It's impossible for them to experience the kind of oneness that our Lord spoke of right here in John chapter 17. And Jesus states that, uh, to those that which believe on me through their word. I want you to notice uh, this is where you get unity. We must first notice that those who believe or exercise faith in Christ do so through their word. Now, who's the there refer to? There refers to the apostles, not to the person who's believing. You're not to, uh, uh, it's not referring to your word. It's the apostles' word. Refers to the apostolic preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we put this together, we understand the proper faith must have its roots in the same gospel that the apostles proclaimed in the first century. We're not referring to some updated model of of the gospel. One that's been modified for the 21st century. But the gospel that transforms those First believers will be the same gospel, the same foundation for the body of Christ in this century as well. And the same body of Christ in various locations like ours. Paul addressed this again, uh, the same truth uh, in Ephesians, dealing with the unity of the believers. Ephesians 2 19, it says, Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God, and are built up upon the foundation, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. The foundation of the apostles and prophets, not their lives, but their preaching. The preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which that's upon which we're to stand. Apart from this foundation, we have no unity as believers. Now, what did they preach? Well, they preached God as creator, sovereign, judge, and giver of life. Tells us that in Acts 17. They preached man's responsibility before God and accountability to those who had broken the written law and the law of consciousness. Our conscience, that's what we're told in Romans chapters 1 through 3. They preached Jesus Christ as God incarnate, the Son of God with power, as the revealer of God to man, as the righteousness of God. Oh, various places, John chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, uh, and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then they preached the gospel as the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, Romans 1.16. 
They preach that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, Romans 1.17. They preach Jesus Christ and him crucified as the satisfaction of God to fulfill the just demands of his righteousness, that he might save sinners, 1 Corinthians 2 and Romans chapter 3. They preach Jesus Christ risen from the dead as a conqueror of sin and death and Satan. 1 Corinthians 15, they preach that no man can be made right with God by his own adherence to the law of God, that man has no room for personal boasting of merit uh, uh, before God, various places throughout the the New Testament. They preached uh, the necessity of the new birth and the work of regeneration, and that this salvation is a holy work of, of God's grace. They preach justification by faith alone in Christ alone for salvation. They preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. They preached Christ as Lord, the ongoing work of sanctification and the assurance of salvation. That's what the apostles preached. That's our foundation for faith and unity. It's these undeniable, non-negotiable truths that the apostles proclaimed and upon which countless sinners have bowed the knee and embraced Jesus Christ as their prophet, priest, and king. You never, never, never find any of the feel-good Christianity in apostolic preaching that's so prevalent in our day. Their gospel had no man-centeredness. Everything from start to finish was to the glory of God. I believe that this is at least a thumbnail sketch of what our Lord meant when he's referring to their word. Boy, that little phrase is packed, isn't it? It's important for us to see that Christ stated faith in him through the apostolic gospel as necessary condition for unity. To believe in Christ must never be thought of as simply acknowledging some facts, although they are wonderful facts. All too many have the idea that since they've been given a, they've given a mental uh, credence to the claims of Christianity, well, they're Christians. Oh yeah, I believe there's a God. I believe Jesus Christ. I believe He died on the cross. I, you know, I, I believe that. But it's never been a personal relationship. So one of the major roots of disunity in our churches. Multitudes have agreed on some truths about Christ without experiencing saving faith in Christ. And the desperate spiritual condition of man requires a supernatural work of God and his spirit for him to believe in Christ. We know that even the demons believe in Christ with trembling. But their kind of faith is certainly not a saving faith. They know the truths of the gospel But there's no faith in them to embrace the gospel. Just consider what Jesus told the renowned Jewish scholar and leader by the name of Nicodemus. What did he tell him? He said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Apart from the supernatural work of the new birth, the regenerating power of the Spirit applied to our spiritually dead minds and affections, we cannot experience the kingdom of God. Now, Bible teachers and preachers will meet with plenty of opposition when they preach the truth and the new birth. The emphasis on the new birth points to God-centeredness of salvation. It's indeed a work of God's grace. 
has nothing to do with our merit, our works. We do not even desire a work apart from God's gracious intervention in our lives. You know, if we are spiritually dead, as according to Ephesians chapter 2, and do not even have a desire to seek God, according to Romans chapter 3, there is none righteous, no, not one, then unless God does something within us to awaken us and quicken us to life, we will truly trust will not truly trust Christ alone for our salvation. We'll be trusting something else. And it won't work. Oh yes, we can be easily manipulated by society and circumstances and even other people to make a decision for Christ. And we do that maybe in an outward fashion, but only the Spirit of God can make us a new creation. It's in response to this invisible, hidden, inner work of the Spirit, a work of the sinner likely does not understand or even realize that a person turns to Christ in faith and embraces Jesus Christ and Him crucified, raised from the dead and reigning as Lord. He trusts in the merit of Christ on His behalf before God and His demands for righteousness. He rests wholly in the sufficiency of the atoning death of Christ And the faith that he exercised is a gift from God that rests upon the foundation of their word, apostolic gospel. Now the biggest problem of disunity in churches is found right here. There are multitudes of unregenerate church members. Someone has said that the reason churches do not grow is due to conflict. Now, if we could just stem the conflict, this person implied, churches would have rapid growth. Now, I do agree with the fact that conflict is a major problem. But I would point out that conflict is simply a fruit of an even greater problem, and it's the fruit of the neglect in preaching the whole gospel of Jesus Christ, the apostolic gospel, if you please, and a dependence upon the Spirit to regenerate sinners. Instead, churches have relied upon easy believism. And that's where a person thinks that being a Christian might help him out of his troubles in life. It might be a fire escape. And so he prays a little prayer, and he joins a church, And before long, he becomes an active church member who's never been born again. And he stays in that church maybe a few years, maybe even becomes a leader in the church, and still he's not born again. And then when he's confronted by the Word of God, he resists and he recoils. And in self-righteousness, he battles against the Word and against biblical Christianity because it reveals his plight before God. His pride stands between him and humbling himself in repentance before the cross of Christ, admitting his lack of merit before God and trusting in Christ alone to justify him before God. He clings to his long tenure. I've been a a member of this church for years and years. I've done this and I've done that. I've I've served and I've done good deeds and I've I've done many religious activities. But in his heart, he knows that he has never bowed the knee before Jesus Christ. And while there are certainly times when true believers disobey God and cause conflict, the greatest cause of disunity in churches today comes from the multitudes of unregenerate people filling the church roles. And our Lord's prayer for unity is not for them. Did you notice that? 
It is for them also which shall believe on me. That is Christ through there, the apostles word, the kind of oneness Jesus speaks of can only be found in those who truly have faith in him. I wonder this morning, where is your faith? Is it your profession or is it in your merit or in your works or in your service or in your baptism? Or is it in Christ alone as the one who has justified you before God? I said there's two conditions. So the second condition is this. Not only faith in Christ, but union with the Godhead. Faith in Christ alone leads to union with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus prayed, As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, and they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Now, in many ways, this passage is like unwrapping kind of a mysterious package. You know that there are good contents within the package, but to get to those contents, what's the contents? The unity. You must make your way through a magnificent wrapping, layer by layer, and each layer of wrapping is essential and foundational to the contents of unity. Now, the whole idea of union with God is not a new idea in John's Gospel. Our Lord had already spoken about this union in the bread of life metaphor in John chapter 6. He talked about it in the rivers of living water metaphor in John chapter 7. He talked about it in uh, John chapter 10 about the good shepherd metaphor and chiefly in the vine and branches metaphor in John chapter 15. So this isn't something he's just introducing to them. This is something he's already been talking about for quite some time. And it shows the remarkable identity that Christians have with God through Jesus Christ. Now, explaining our union with God is really not that easy. And that's apparent in the way Jesus introduces the whole idea. He says, As thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. That's the foundation. Now, can anyone fully explain the mysterious union between the Father and the Son? I don't think I can. That's a mystery to me. Now, someday I hope I find out. When we get to heaven, we'll find some of this out. Neither can we fully explain the union between the child of God and the Godhead. I can't explain it. I take it by faith. In regard to the divine union, we know that there is absolute oneness in the Godhead. We have not three gods, but we have one God, one in essence, one in being, one in substance, and yet we have three distinct members of the Godhead, and each member holds particular responsibilities in the divine economy. For instance, we speak of the Father uh, 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 sending the Son, for God so loved the world, He sent His only begotten Son. God sent the Son, the Son Uh, died on the cross, he did the redeeming, and the Holy Spirit does the regeneration work of salvation. There's no disunity among the members of the Trinity, but a perfect union, a symmetry in exercising the divine will. And our Lord means for us to see our unity rooted in that union. Now we see this concept repeated throughout his prayer. I won't take time to read all the, the verses in this, and as you've been reading it, You will have seen this in verse 5, 10, 11, and later in verse 22. 
So we must ask, what kind of union does the Father and the Son maintain? And we can state that it is a union of a living being, rather than a mechanical or organizational union. It's a union of purpose and will, so that there's never a conflict in the divine economy, which is what constitutes God's will. It's the affectionate union in the Father who loves the Son and the Son who loves the Father. It's the perfect love faithfully maintaining, uh, maintains in the divine glory and in the action and purpose and decree. It's a union that expresses itself in purity and holiness and righteousness. Now I want to just spend a couple of minutes here talking about what does unity not imply. What does this unity through union not imply? Well, first of all, our unity has a reflection of divine union is not a loss of distinctiveness as an individual. Now we can never... Uh, We are to never think of a church as just a conglomerate of clones. We're just cookie-cutter Christians, someone called them. That's not the way we view ourselves. No, we each have our own personality. We have our own function. We have our own interests. We maintain our distinctive personalities and functions, even as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit maintain their distinctions, their functions. And then in verse Corinthians chapter 12, it gives us an extensive treatment of the necessary uh, necessity of our uh, distinctions and the different functions as members of the body of Christ in this location. Secondly, nor does our unity imply that we are somehow being deified. We're not becoming gods. God is God, man is man. We do not mix or mingle with divine essence. Now that's the heresy of the Mormons, among others as well. We do not become gods. And then thirdly, nor does it in our unity imply that we are incorporated into the cosmos so that we have a unity with nature. We have a unity with the heavens. We have a new unity with the creation. That is pantheism. That's a pantheistic idea that many of the New Age uh, followers uh, movement uh, are promoting. Occasionally I read about someone who eloquently defends the idea of our needing to be one with nature. Like the bumper sticker that says, Be good to your Mother Earth. Hey, Earth is not my mother. All right? So that's what this union does not imply. Secondly, though, what our union with the Godhead does imply. It means that we have an identity of relationship with the Godhead. Jesus explained this in the passages on union that we've already noted. Uh, Jesus is the bread of life. He sustains us. He is our sufficiency. Uh, he's the living water that we that dwells within us, gushing forth a constant refreshing of divine provision. Uh, He's the good shepherd who lays down his life for us, whose voice we hear and we gladly follow. Uh, He's the vine in whom we are united as branches. He gives us life. His joy has become our joy. His love becomes our love. That's the relationship that we have with the Godhead. Secondly, our union also implies the sphere of our existence in a vital, living relationship to God through Christ. Paul testified in numerous places that Jesus Christ was his life. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. 
and other places. And that kind of statement cuts across the grain of so much of so-called religious life today in which a person goes to church but has no vital living Christianity. To be in Christ is to know Him as your life. It's not just for this hour here on Sunday morning. It's for 24-7. He's the reason you exist. You are to be conscious of that. All of that life is with a consciousness of giving Him glory. Think of the many times in the epistles that we find the phrase like in Christ or in Him. And both of those ideas express, uh, those phrases express the idea that we live in the sphere of Jesus Christ as our life. In Him we live and move and have our being, Acts 17, 28. In Him we find our greatest delights. In Him we have hope for facing the uncertainties of life. In Him we know a strength and power that's not natural to us. In Him we find our deepest satisfactions. And then thirdly, our union with the Godhead implies a living dependence upon God and the provisions of His grace by the Holy Spirit. A Christian never gets away from faith or else he's not a Christian. We come to Christ by faith. We walk with Christ by faith. Faith brings us to an awareness of our helplessness uh, and God's great sufficiency. It puts us in a position of dependence upon what God has provided for us out of the richness of His grace. We go to the Word of God, we find food for our souls. We are strengthened and within our being is a greater consciousness of resting in dependence upon the Lord. We face trials and adversities which brings us to our knees in humbleness and trust and dependence upon God. We never get away from God dependence. Really, a Christian is a person who's living in dependence upon the provision of God of, uh, in Christ for life and eternity. So to conclude, we have no need to form a committee to come up with a plan for unity. Unity has conditions. And any attempt to manufacture unity apart from these conditions is foolishness. It's unbiblical. But oh, that we must not treat lightly these conditions. We have unity because of a faith in Christ through the revelation of God and His gospel. It's a gospel that has been that was proclaimed by the Lord, by His apostles, and faithfully by others through the ages. And we want to continue to proclaim that same gospel. It's a gospel that's consistent with the written revelation of God, which we have in the Bible. It's not a gospel that accommodates culture and societal trends. It's a gospel preached by the apostles and the prophets upon which we are founded with Christ himself being the cornerstone. But we're not just believing a teaching. No, we're believing a living person. Jesus Christ, the Lord God, the very God, the man of very man, uh, the perfect in obedience to the law on our behalf, crucified, uh, bearing our sins and the curse of God on our behalf was put upon him, raised from the dead as uh, to reign as Lord over all. And through him and in, in him alone, we are freely justified by faith without a mixture of personal merit. 
I wonder this morning, are you resting in the work of Christ for your justification before God? There can be no unity without a firm faith in Christ alone. Our unity rests, or reflects, I should say, reflects the reality of our union with the Godhead. You say, I don't fully understand that. Yes, it is mysterious, but it is a union that's more than just acknowledgement of a creed or a system of beliefs. It's a union with God in Christ through the regenerating and grafting work of the Holy Spirit. It's a union that identifies you in a relationship of dependence, in a relationship of joy, in a relationship of life in Christ. Do you know this union in the depths of your soul this morning? Where there is no union with the Godhead, there can be no unity. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven...